Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, and I had a little bit different spin on things today. Um, two of my guests, they're going to both be speaking at the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference in February in Dallas, February 16, 17, 18. I wanted to have them on the podcast so we could talk about and hint at their upcoming topic. They're going to be talking about uh, regulations versus uh, industry speed, you know, regulations being slow and moving along kind of slowly, maybe like the, the tortoise and the hare example. And the industry, as we all know, is blazing fast, innovating, changing every day, how the two are going to reconcile without colliding and you know, causing a big mess. So I have Joe Ciccolo, uh, head of BitAML and Amber Scott, uh, Chief AML Ninja at Outlier Solutions. How are you guys doing? Great, thank Good, you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe we could start out, um, maybe, you know, Amber, if you go first and uh, talk about, you know, hint at what are you going to talk about during the conference and maybe some highlights of it. I know the good thing is the conference is far enough out that things will change and we'll have juicy, interesting updates. But um, as you see it right now, how is this uh, fast versus slow dichotomy going to play out? Sure. Um, I I think that that's probably the biggest challenge that we deal with. And it's a challenge that expresses itself not just in terms of speed. So we have regulation that's slow. We have the speed of industry that's fast. But regulation is also very local, which is part of what we'll be covering. We have regulations that tend to be not only slow, but also quite Mm. local in nature. So where we have these brilliant instant global phenomena they're butting up against the rules that apply in different jurisdictions that are slow to change in different jurisdictions, and at this point that are even slow to be expressed in terms of how they apply. So I think one of the most fascinating challenges that we're dealing with right now is just what laws apply, how do existing laws apply, and what are those differences in different places that you have to pay attention to, even if you could, in theory, deploy the same way everywhere all at once. You know, you're right. We have the world has what 210 countries approximately. I might be wrong, maybe 180, but that's 180 to 210 different governments that want to weigh in on cryptocurrencies and blockchain assets. What are we supposed to do with with these types of things being global? It's it's hard. I think sometimes there has to be strategic decisions, and and we see that already. It's um it's something that. Various parties would call either regulatory arbitrage, and that's not specific to cryptocurrency. That's something that happens everywhere, where you have decisions about the markets that you want to play in, 
what that looks like, how you decide where you're going to incorporate, um, where you're going to launch your product and who you're going to offer it to. I think that those decisions become especially salient in our world with digital currency because you're looking at something where it does have the potential to be instant and global. So what do you do when you have a regulator in one jurisdiction that really isn't amenable to what you're selling? And there are a lot of considerations that that come into play. Do you think um, some of the major world economic powers, you know, the U.S., Penn, England, et cetera, do you think they'll set the tone and then a lot of other countries will follow? Or do you think there'll be, a, you know, 180 crying voices and each one will want different things? And, and how do you think it's going to play out? As the non-American on the call, I'm going to ask uh, Joe to answer that one first, and then maybe I'll try then. Okay. Joe, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, so to answer your question, okay. I think the uh, the U.S. marketplace is, is interesting um, in this respect. So the regulators and, and uh, compliance professionals are feeling a lot of pressure uh, for the U.S. to really lead in an innovative way. Uh, and we've seen this throughout the the disclosures and, and the hearings and, and um, you know, some of the uh, regulatory guidance that we received um, in the industry that the regulators and, and uh, those in power are very quick to point out that they don't want to stifle innovation. Um, however, the U.S. is seen as not being pro-innovation uh, in the crypto space. So there, there are some pressures back and forth, and um, you know there's, there are definitely some opportunities. Uh, unfortunately, for some of the other uh, countries, uh, again, as Amber is kind enough to point out, I am the, uh, the, the U.S. representative on this call. Unfortunately, the U.S. does exercise extraterritorial jurisdiction in that those that choose to set up Bitcoin and, and crypto-related entities um, overseas and uh, choose to uh, target U.S. demographic, U.S. customers wouldn't have to register with FinCEN. So there is a great deal of, of regulatory oversight with respect to uh, to the U.S. marketplace. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're seen as not being competitive. And in fact, we've had many representing the those of us in industry uh, that have sort of went before politicians and said, well, you know, if someone wanted to start a crypto business today, uh, the best advice I could give them is to, to do it somewhere other than the United States. And that's very difficult to hear, especially as we, we've always prided ourselves on being a very innovative and, and entrepreneurial friendly uh, country. So there are other opportunities. And, and I think that some of these other countries are going to step up and, and put themselves in a position to be the favorable jurisdiction. I can say on the state level here in the United States, uh, my state, Illinois, uh, is very pro-Bitcoin, very pro-blockchain. They've come and, and said that they want to be a hub of innovation uh, in both areas, uh, both on the blockchain and the crypto side, uh, which is very refreshing to see. Although they didn't name New York by, by name specifically, uh, it was very clear that they wanted to learn, in their words, or, or if I can paraphrase, they wanted to learn from other jurisdictions that had more of a heavy-handed approach. So there is going to be and I don't think it's necessarily just internationally. I think uh, here in the U.S., we're going to see a lot of states uh, go back to back and back uh, back and forth, trying to find a, a favorable position to be in to to compete for a lot of the talented folks that that Amber and I talk to every day in the industry. Joe, do you think that even if uh, federally the U.S. is restrictive on blockchain assets, do you think states can rise above it? And do you think states have enough population where they can? You know, they like Illinois, you know, let's say Illinois goes the opposite way of the, the federal statute and they want to just, like you said, they want to really be innovators in the crypto space. Will they be pulled down by federal laws or do you think they can rise above them or what, what do you, how do you think that'll play out? 
Sure. I think there are certain limitations with respect to the states. Uh, you know, certainly don't want to take on the federal government and certainly don't want to get into a protracted disagreement or, or some sort of back and forth regarding regulation. So take, for example, money transmission. Yes, we have favorable laws here or a favorable regulatory outlook here uh, in Illinois, but that doesn't mean you can get around registering with FinCEN. You still have to register with FinCEN. So there are going to be some obligations that need to be fulfilled at the federal level, no matter what, and the states have uh, less degree of power to influence that. However, if the same rules apply at the federal level across the board, well, we have uh, 50 laboratories of democracy here in the U.S. So of what the states can impact, in this particular case, state money transmission regulations, they're in a position to maybe deliver something that's much more favorable. So if someone does decide to stay in the United States or incorporate in the United States or move some of their, their assets and their customer base to the U.S., they can be in a position where they can choose the state and choose the jurisdiction that, that's right for them and, and, uh, and has less of that licensing pressure. Yeah, last question for you about the U.S., and then I want to ask about Canada again, uh, Amber. In the U.S., you probably talk to, you know, FinCEN, maybe FINRA, SEC, et cetera. Are these agencies aware that they may be stifling innovation? Do they care? Is there a reason why they're, the posture of the U.S. federal government is this way? I haven't asked that question specifically, but if I, if I can sort of recall looking at some of the different uh, sort of transcripts from testimony and, and regulatory guidance, it's clear that to me that FinCEN believes that they are not stifling innovation, that they have come to their determination based on a degree of compromise, based on their understanding and the need for innovation. So I don't necessarily think that they believe um, that they're stifling innovation. And, and um, you know, I, I suppose in a certain respect, I, I'd, I'd have to let them off the hook here as their job is to protect the consumer. It's not necessarily to advocate for innovation. But I do think that there is there can be a can be a fine line there sometimes. So yeah, to answer your question, I, I don't necessarily think they're aware. Um, of what the perception is. I think that they believe, based on what they've done and what they've sort of compromised on internally, uh, that this is a that this is a fair uh, distinction. Um, and, you know, I would argue that, that money transmission was probably the closest in terms of, of licensure and in terms of regulatory oversight that we could have come up with based on existing frameworks uh, here in the U.S. Um, you know, the one space, um, many have told me that you know, if you ask me if I'm a money transmitter, um, how does that work operationally? Yeah, maybe it's a, a 90 or 95% match to what I'm doing. There are some differences and there are some things that we need to appreciate between traditional money transmission and the cryptocurrency space. But so far as I can tell, and, and from what I've experienced in the marketplace, uh, it seems to me that's probably the, uh, it appears we're at least on the right trajectory in that respect. Okay. And Amber, what about uh, Canada? Are there different voices coming from the different provinces or is Canada unified in how it looks at at crypto. Federally, our anti-money laundering regulation exists federally. Um, our securities regulation is provincial. And so we have different things coming from different securities regulators. We do have a couple of the securities regulators that have taken sort of a regulatory sandbox approach. They've taken very collaborative approaches with the community in terms of recruiting advisors that are involved in Bitcoin and blockchain that have been involved in different ICOs and brought those people in to ask for recommendations. And I, I think that's really important. To your last question, I don't think that regulators um, set out to stifle innovation. Even having had very, very brief conversations with people that were involved in the bit license process, I don't think even with that, no matter how arduous and frankly silly, I think that some of the bit license requirements are, I don't think that anyone got up in the morning and said, hey, 
we'd really like to stifle innovation. We'd like to to crush this whole Bitcoin and cryptocurrency thing. Um, we'd like to stop that from happening here. And this is as close as we could get. I think that people are always legitimately trying to put guardrails around it. And they're interpreting things in terms of the pre-existing systems. And so what's already there, what we've already done, that limits the field of view in a sense in terms of what we think we can do and how we understand the world. And so that's that's definitely part of it. The other part of it is that I I got to have this great conversation with sociologist from Canada Revenue Agency about game theory. And one of the things that she said to me because we were talking about what does good policy look like is that we have to remember that if policy has endured, if it's there, if it's in place, something about it is right. So whether or not I like it, whether or not I believe it's the right approach, something about it inherently has to be working because it's still there, because it's still in place. I think our job as a community and the place where as as Bitcoiners, as blockchainers, as, as people who care about this technology is really to try to inform that. Because at some level, there's always going to be pressure for government and for these agencies to regulate things. And if we want better policy, we have to think about what good policy looks like. We have to be willing to educate about what we're doing. We have to take the time to sit down at the table with stakeholders and inform them and think about what it is we want, other than just we don't want to be regulated at all because that's unlikely. Makes sense. Okay. Just last couple of questions. Where do you see in the world, you know, both of you, that the regulations really are taking shape very fast and which countries are, you know, kind of leading the way, which ones are holding back and waiting or trying to clamp down on things? I'm a big fan of Singapore's approach right now. So I I think they're definitely taking a risk-based approach to things. They've released a number of communications about risk, but they've also, from a policy position, said that they want to foster innovation. They want to attract technology to the country. Um, They want companies to be set up there. I'm also a a huge fan. So a a shout out to Estonia because I uh, just picked up my e-residency. So my identity is now on the blockchain through the country of Estonia. And I'm excited about starting to harass local regulators here. Maybe harass is not the right word. Um, seek clarification on the the acceptability and, and use of this type of identification within the Canadian context and, and within other contexts. Oh, so that's I, I interesting. That, yeah, and, and so this is, this is a blockchain-based identity document that they've issued as a country. Um, it allows you to set up bank accounts in Europe, to start a company in Europe as a non-resident, um, and be fully identified, be identified in the online space. The packet that you get with the identification is fantastic. It actually talks about the importance of keeping your private keys private. Really, really fantastic, I think, tack for a tiny country in the Baltic to be taking that I think will absolutely um, attract entrepreneurs and attract uh, technology and innovation. Oh, very cool. What about you, Joe? What are you seeing worldwide? Who are the... uh you know, the players and the movers and shakers here. Yeah, I, w- I would echo the, echo the sentiments of, of Amber, although I haven't uh, yet filed for my um, my, e, uh, <laughs> my e identity with uh, Estonia. But, um, no, I, I mean, I, I'm looking at different larger sort of bellwethers, looking to see what India does. I, I don't think they uh, took a favorable stance uh, to begin with. I think Japan showed a great deal of restraint uh, as a result of, uh, obviously, Mt. Gox, uh, you know, the now defunct uh, Bitcoin exchange that... Um, you know, really sort of set the the regulatory 
world on fire, if you will, uh, out of the gate. Um, having that as their backdrop, I, I feel like they showed a, a great deal of restraint um, in thinking through, you know, some of the requirements they have in, in place, and, and now having sort of capital requirements and cybersecurity and some other common features that we're that we're used to here in, in the Americas. So, you know, for them to take that approach again, following on the backdrop of Mt. Gox, showed a lot of restraint. Um, the fact that they did that very deliberatively. I like to see that, even if we disagree with some of the different countries uh, and, and what stances they may take or, or to what degree they may take, it's really good invoking disclosures and, and other information sharing between the public and private sector. So um, I'm anxious to see. I, I really have my eye on India as sort of the next, you know, sort of bellwether uh, in the international world as to what their stance will be and, and what, if any, of the the uh, suggestions, if I can put it that way, suggestions they have will, will move forward uh, in terms of regulations and what will be the reality. But here back back here in the U.S., uh, I suspect that the states will continue to sort of um, jockey for position. Uh, I've seen a growing trend on the states that either have no opinion uh, or have a somewhat positive opinion, uh, maybe as a result of having no opinion, about Bitcoin and money transmission have been a lot more forthcoming uh, when individuals have called up and said, am I regulated or do I need a, a, a license in the state? And, and many of those states have actually started engaging uh, when individuals have called up. and so. It used to be early on when I would work with my clients, either they would call individually or we would call together around the different voicemails. And, and the person you needed to speak to was always out of the uh, always out of the office at that particular moment. <laughs> and uh, you know, we never really got uh, got any further than, than a couple of different uh, sort of voicemails. But now it seems a lot of the states are more interested in actually answering those questions one way or the other, which I think is a good indication that they begin to see that this marketplace has some traction and they want to give it the professionalism that it deserves. So I, I suspect we'll see more of that. <clears throat> and again, I think more states will continue to take the position of no position, which is to say, well, we don't see that um, the particular activity that you're doing, sir or ma'am, uh, in any way is money transmission under our current laws. So at this point, we have no position. Uh, I think that that's a little bit of a delay tactic, but a very positive one uh, for the industry. Um, and, and hopefully, as Amber mentioned, you know, these states are taking that opportunity to really think about things, think about their impact to innovation, and really come up with something based in common sense as to what the, the licensing or other regulatory implications would be. All right. Last question. Um, in reference to your guys' topic at the upcoming uh, conference in February, any hints about what you're going to talk about? Or is that, again, it's still developing? or uh, anything interesting that you're seeing going on that you can talk about? Um, it's it's always a work in progress, but I, I think we'll definitely talk about ICOs. We'll talk about risk. We'll talk about the ways that, that countries might perceive risk differently, um, as well as the ways to think about the countries that you're dealing with, the markets that you're playing in, and the regulatory risk associated with those. Yeah, you know? I think that, that I would agree with Amber, and I would also add, you know, we, we talked about the tortoise and the hare as our analogy here. For as fast as we are as an industry, and sometimes we see that as a negative, I see different opportunities where we can move that into a positive, which is to say that in our industry, we've seen a lot of technology such as blockchain explorer technology come out whereby you can see a snapshot or, or a history or some sort of risk rating uh, of activity on the blockchain that can be used as part of one's overall AML compliance strategy. That's not you know, in letter required by regulators, but as part of an overall risk-based approach, that's a very effective tool that you can use as part of your, your compliance and your, your AML risk mitigation strategy. And even though that a lot of those are experimental or early stages, I've been advocating that my clients get involved in using that software, even for lower denomination transactions. So there is a way that we can we can demonstrate as an industry to the regulators, not only are we in a position to have a strong compliance program in place to meet your requirements as a regulatory body, but at the same time, we have some other 
tools at our disposal as an industry that are creative, uh, that in many cases are ahead of traditional bank clients AML tools that we can put out there. So, you know, maybe we won't be as, as boastful as the, as the uh, hare was and the tortoise and the hare. Maybe we can use this time to, to be ahead to maybe encourage uh, our friends, the tortoise, to catch up. So hopefully I didn't take that analogy too far, but I think there's some great opportunity to, uh, to use our, our fast speed and, and some of the things we've developed as an industry for the positive uh, for all of us. Yeah, and hopefully regulators won't you know, take offense at being called tortoises. They're probably fast tortoises, but they're tortoises, I guess. <laughs> Racing tortoises. <laughs> well, well, if we remember the story, the tortoise ended up winning anyway, so maybe it is a, a compliment in disguise. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, great. I'm looking forward definitely to having you guys uh, speak at the conference in February. Any last words? Uh, how can people in the meantime learn more about what you're working on, Joe, and, and you, Amber? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, I'm always happy to hear with folks in the industry, uh, even if it's just a simple question or they want to bounce something off of me uh, here in the U.S. Uh, my website uh, is probably the best way to get a hold of me, uh, bitaml, B-I-T-A-M-L.com. Uh, and my email address is joe at bitaml.com. Um, always, always up for answering questions, even if you just want to talk about the crypto space, if you have an idea in the back of your mind, if you have a full-time job and you want to do something on the side in the crypto space and you just want to pick my brain. Uh, I'm always happy to, to help folks out. So, uh, but if not, I look forward to, to seeing as many of uh, listeners as possible um, at the event uh, down in Texas. I'm, I'm very excited and uh, and eager to engage uh, eager to engage this audience in person. And Amber. Um, so our our website is outliercanada.com. Um, you can reach us on Twitter at Outlier Canada. Uh, find us on on LinkedIn or or Facebook. Um, we're really excited uh, about seeing everyone in Texas as well. Come with lots of questions. Um, any anything that you want to know about compliance and crypto, um, we're happy to answer. And if uh, if we don't answer what you want to hear while we're on stage, I am always happy to answer questions for barbecue. Excellent. <laughs> Hopefully, they, you know, there's good Texas barbecue, so we should we should have some there. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the food in Texas is always fantastic. <laughs> well, guys, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Rich. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.